Hello, I'm Tim McLaughlin, and this is a Maywa podcast. The Working Traveler was a workshop held at the Maywa Textile Symposium on October 17, 2007. The panel consisted of John Gillow, Norja Hanbil Grammy, and Charlotte Kwan. Each member of the panel spoke about their personal experience as a working traveler, how they got started, the reason for their journeys, and how travel and the interaction with other cultures has changed their lives. In this, the last of four episodes, John, Charlotte, and Norjahan answer questions from the participants. The first question went to John Gillow and asked about his present work. I was talking to Isabel by country who just walked in and he was talking about the changes. In a way, I don't want to go back. It's, it's an area that I loved, but it was an area at a particular time that I loved it. And I'm not a manufacturer. I'm not, I haven't got a, I've got the mechanisms for um, production and, and, and marketing. Um, so I tend to go to the place. I spent a lot of time, the more, more recent years, I spent a lot of time in Pakistan, which is relatively um, unexplored from, from a Western point of view. And that area, Sindh, which is just across the border from Kutch, the desert area around Karachi, is it's, it's almost like the mother of all textiles in the subcontinent, isn't it? it no chance smiling, but, but it's unrecognised. If you if That's you talk true. all around those borderlands, you talk in Gujarat and Rajasthan, they'll all say, oh, it's from Sindh. And you go, Sindh is incredibly poor, the interior, just mind-bogglingly poor. Um, there's certain things have survived, like the, the embroidery and the quilting, but other things, like the weavings, and that's just disappeared, but it would be possible to revive them. Um, so I spent a lot of time in Sindh, <coughs> but I do, I write, I write textile books for Thames and Hudson, and at the moment I'm doing um, textiles of the Islamic world. So I've been going to Iran a lot, um, just, just to annoy George Bush, really. Um, and Afghanistan and various other parts of the, you know, the tiny countries in the Muslim world. And I'm trying to put together an idea of how the religion of Islam has influenced the textiles and the patterns. And um, so the abstract nature of patterning, which you find all over the Muslim world. And this embroidery that we're interested in, it must predate, well, I presume it predates Islam. Islam but you find it from Morocco and the West. All the way to Kutch is the is the pretty much the eastern extreme of this embroidery, this dowry tradition, making dresses and whatever for the wedding. So I <coughs> I try and find countries that I think will have good textiles that maybe I've read about um, that nobody's gone to, and I get a, I just buy a ticket and go there. And I've just been in Albania, which is. When my dad dropped dead 20 years ago, I think his penultimate words to me were, we haven't been to Albania, have we? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I owed the old bugger that one. Um, so, we went, so I went and I found, I found wonderful things. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful embroidery. And it's, again, it's, it's something, everything's changing. So they will not be made 
Um, but you might as well collect examples while you're at it. Then at least you've got something if you need to revive it at some stage. A question was asked about the sustainability of artisan work. Both John and Norjahan had comments. Actually, it's, uh, it's one of the things that I'm debating with right now and I'm having a major problem with. Um, yeah, because right now that is uh, some of the work that I've got on my hand. Um, I, I would go by the rule that um, you have to respect the... For me, what is most important, what makes a textile a textile from another textile is the process. So within that process, um, if you can retain its identity and yet bring it contemporarized, it's a huge challenge that way. Then you are being respectful to the process and you're seeing that it, there's a continuity in it. And that is what is making it unique from another textile. If you're able to do that for the con contemporary market, I think that's the most perfect way to do it. But if you're bringing a change in your evolution by completely changing the whole process, then it's no longer what it was, you know, you make, made it unique, then it's a screen-printed ajrak, for example. Then what is the point of having the other ajrak? Then you're not, uh, you know, taking care of that. That's gone. And everybody would be then using a pattern in screen print, which is happening also. So how do you protect the original 21-stage ajrak from, from its continuity, retain that, and allow that the screen-printed ajraks will always take place. There's a different market. But the main thing is how do you protect the Banarsi weavers who, you know, who are actually weaving this by hand, for example, from Chinese. <laughs> Varanasi is going through this major problem, but... China has come and taken uh, the designs from Banaras and they are weaving uh, and bringing it back and selling in Banaras. So how do you protect the weavers from doing this? Should they stop doing this? Should it all be mill-produced? I mean, this is these are all the questions that we do have. So I think it does become our responsibility uh, to try and protect the, the processes, at least some of it for its continuity. I mean, it's a, it's a very tough debate, but that is what is what is. I think we're all facing with the extinction of crops at the moment. Can we pay, pay that price for its continuity? Yeah, but, but the main thing is to provide a market, and to, um, Charlotte, I'm sure, will talk about this: is to to keep the quality as high as you can and get the highest price for your handmade goods in the West, because we can afford it. And if you get, if you pay if you can if you are able to sell things for a high price at the top of the market you then have enough leeway all the way through the, the stages of business to pay your producers a good healthy living wage mm -hmm. but if you produce inferior goods which you sell as charity I, I'm, I'm actually very against that because yeah. it That's just doesn't work yeah. people don't people only buy it once out of out of pity yeah. and then it's, that's not sustainable. A question was directed to Charlotte, asking about how she communicates with artisans and how she tracks the completion of orders. If the orders are filled reliably, if I, yeah, if I'm on top of it or staff is on top of it here, absolutely they're filled reliably. You have to set out not unrealistic things. So uh, deadlines. You have to understand the craft market. You have to understand the weaver's issues and the weave and the issues of the block printer and so forth. 
And there's certain things you have to believe and certain things you just don't have to accept. There are weather issues. There's monsoon issues, huge. You can't sort of say, oh, right, I heard that monsoon issue last year. It is a monsoon <laughs> issue every year. <laughs> but, you know, there's some excuses that are a little shifty and you sort of go, okay, actually, I can't accept that excuse, but I can accept this excuse. And so we've learned to give very realistic time frames on things. And then, yes, but we end up having to follow it through every step of the way. I'm in India three to four times a year, so I'm always... If I'm not at that village, I'm phoning them, I'm contacting them and say, okay, how is this going and how is that going? We have all kinds of flow charts and spreadsheets and all kinds of things going on to kind of uh, help them stick to their, their timing. But I have to say, you know, we just got all our <laughs> wool uh, in the middle of summer that we've waited for. We're supposed to be here for last winter. But they had some serious issues. This was in the north of India. Uh, quality issues, which I didn't actually let things get shipped until we um, got the yarn spun right. So, you know, uh, there's a lot of technology now that's very, very useful, digital cameras, cyber cafes, all kinds of <laughs> things that make it possible for mistakes not to be made because ultimately I am functioning outside my language and ultimately the, everybody wants to make the order right and on time and most of the issues are around communication. So if we can over-communicate, it's, it's, a, it's not a bad thing. Over e email more than you need to do more photos, more. We've given digital cameras almost to every um, group or artisan family, whatever, that we work with. So that, you know, then I can say, you know, you should have sent me the picture of that edging or that corner. Or, you know, you know what a migrant corner is. You can't actually do it this other clunky way. You need to send me a picture of it, and then I will send you an email and agree with it. Those are those are things that actually they feel better at, to, at if that's there. So that's what I mean by over-communication. Yeah. A question was directed toward Norjahan Bilgrami, asking about what concerns she had as a single woman traveling alone. Um, I really feel I'm extremely fortunate being a woman uh, in Pakistan because um, I think the respect that I get from the people is just immense. It gives me an opportunity, being a woman, to go into the homes, which many men are not allowed. So I get an edge over John Gillow yeah, to yeah, get inside the homes. Without a word. Without yeah. Absolutely. So I think being a woman has been extremely great. And I've had some... I, there's a book of mine, The Crafts of Pakistan. The last uh, work that I did, uh, which went beyond textiles, was the, uh, when I was asked, commissioned by the government to do a book uh, to cover the crafts of Pakistan. Um, I was traveling in Baluchistan, and you know, I was just with this driver and myself, and the car. Uh, this is the most hostile. But the ba Baluchistan is is bad country. It, no, he could have gone. It's, it is, and it's just hostile. The landscape is just dark, and um, in the middle, uh, and the car broke down, and nothing works. There's no cell phone. There's no telephone. There's nothing for miles and miles and miles of this way. I was the only woman in the car, and there were two, three men, and they had no step knee. There was no spare tire. And um, I, I think that that's the first time that my blood just froze and I was chilled. I didn't know what, and it was becoming dark. And I had no idea how I will, you know, what would happen. But everybody was so fantastic. I mean, somebody came and stopped and said, you want to take a ride in another truck? And I said, no, I'll wait. 
But finally, uh, I mean, nothing happened. I've, I've not had, mashallah, any wrong incidents. But I just feel it has given me an edge to be able to go into areas where, uh, into the women quarters. And, and the men, I mean, they would all respect me and any information, anything. It's, the doors have been always open. A lot of respect. Now, might I butt in? I think as a, as a what maybe I reinforce what No Jahan's saying is, as a woman, you can live in those, those traditional societies. There's a men's world and, and a woman's world, and they're, they're, you know there's a division between the two. And as a Western woman, you can be in the men's world and in the woman's world. But for me, as a guy traveling, I'm in the men's world, and mm-hmm. the it's very rare that I get let in, it, even even just a tiny an inch or so into the woman's world. So there's all kinds of things going on in the woman's world. And and the the thing I've noticed as I've travelled is that um, what the men believe in terms of religion or whatever is is one thing. And uh, there's underneath the men's world, there's a lot of superstition and a lot of local customs. But the women believe something completely different. They only give lip service to what the men's beliefs are <laughs> and what they actually believe is something completely different and as a woman you can get in there and find out what they actually believe and the men will tell you what the women are supposed to believe but it's it's actually something completely different you know, like in, uh, they say that when in Rome be as the Romans so you just have to be a little careful that you cover your head or you just if you are respectful, respectful towards them then you get that back. And I think the hospitality, despite the fact that I'm a Pakistani living in an urban area, the kind of hospitality that you experience in the rural areas is just unbelievable. And I can't reciprocate that. When the craftsmen come to my house, I can't do what they do for me. So with nothing, nothing, the extreme abject poverty, they would share whatever they have, whether it's knowledge, uh, if it's one bread, or if it's a chicken in the compound, it'll be cooked for you. So they would just lay down whatever they have to um, give you that kind of hospitality. A question was directed to Charlotte, asking how difficult it was to move goods from India to North America. They're not as bad as you would think. The tariffs, I think, are grossly out of whack. People think because we're trading in cultural goods that Mm -hmm. Canadian government is is somehow sensitive to that, not anymore. Uh, in the last 10 years, and because we're, it's not, we're not part of NAFTA, we don't get any, um, and because India no longer is a most preferred nation, for the most part, we don't get any deals, and pretty much all my goods are at 24 to 28% duty, which is very frustrating, actually. Um, but, yes. Of the cost, of the cost, yeah. Uh, so, um, but actually the importing of it, people get terrified by that. I talk to people all the time who phone me and go, oh my God, I've got this box coming in, I don't know how to clear it. And that isn't, that's not that difficult. Mm-hmm. Everything now is on the internet. It's, you can pull down forms and you can get all your codes for importing on the internet. It's so much easier than when I started because of so much information being available individually. You don't have to go to cargo brokers all the time. I have a cargo broker now that, that brings everything in, but I'm in constant discussion with her as to what, what code I want it brought in at. Um, because I do a lot of, you know, it's for my own benefit that I do a lot of research as to. So, yeah, you can find your way around those types of things. I actually happen to quite revel in 
in the laws <laughs> and finding my way around them. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't. I find that quite somewhat satisfying. I find it burdensome at times, mm -hmm. but I find it satisfying when I actually learn it and I actually get it. And I'm like, oh yeah. I just pick up phones though to people. I'll pick. I have no problem picking up the phone and phoning the head guy at Pier 1 or Ikea or whatever and going, I just got a quick question for you or anybody in business, I'll, I'll phone them and say, how are you selling this for that? Because there's no way I could sell this for that. You know, just even say bringing in raw fabric mm -hmm. and you look on Fraser Street where all the Indian stores mm -hmm. are and I think, how did they bring that in from India? I have to sell it for like $15 and they're selling it for 7 I'll just go up there and start chatting to them and figure out how did you get it in? I, I'll always stop when people have questions. I'll always stop to answer them. And people have, because people have been very generous to me too. And we conclude with a series of quotes presented by Norjahan Bilgrammy. I had, you know, while I was doing this, I jotted down a few quotations which I thought I'd share with you all because I think it, they're, they're important in my life. And um, is that okay? Allowed? That would be great. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Uh, this is by somebody called Christopher Reeve, and he says, At first, dreams seem impossible, then improbable, and eventually inevitable. <laughs> so I really believe in that. Then um, Victor Frank says, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing. The last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Nobody can that, take that away from you. And that is really what leads you on. So let I would say, please do allow your inner intuition to guide you, because I think that is what has been always much against many people's wishes. I carry on doing what I think inwardly is, is right. So maybe your reason at that time or your logic does not permit that, but uh, be guided by your inner intuition. <laughs> and um, two, three more. Mm. What you leave behind is not what is engraved in stone monuments, but what is woven into the lives of others. And I think Charlotte is doing just that. <laughs> And then Carl Jung's that he who looks outside dreams. He who looks within awakens. So that's that. <laughs> and I'll end with be the change you wish to see in the world, which is Mahatma Gandhi's. You've been listening to The Working Traveler, recorded live in the Maywell Loft on Granville Island, Vancouver. The Working Traveler was presented as part of the Maywa Textile Symposium and was held on October 17, 2007. Our next podcast will be excerpts from the lecture given by Jane Callender titled The Intimate Stitch, Blue Leaf Shibori. For more information on Maywa podcasts, visit our website at www.maywa.com. I'm Tim McLaughlin. Thank you for listening.